to continue where we left off. <clears throat> continue from where we left off. Not sure what's so funny about it, but it is definitely funny. <laughs> Have to say it exactly the right way. If samadhi practice has to do with getting out of harm's way, if you recall, sidestepping the kalesas, creating a, a refuge or a sanctuary or a strong house. place of seclusion in the heart. Vipassana has to do with examining the harm itself, looking at the kalesas themselves, not sidestepping them. If we use the image of the dog running after the bone, where doggy mind runs after every preconception that the mind has, and lion mind remains still and just looks from where the thoughts are coming, looks to where the thoughts are coming from, then Vipassana is examining the bones. What is it that the mind is so preoccupied with anyway? Why? Uh, what's all the fuss? What is it we're running after? All these mental productions, why are they so fascinating and why do they hold us so? Vipassana goes right to them. It even examines the house itself, not only the, the preoccupations, the kalesas, the bones, but it looks to the sanctuary itself that we've so painstakingly constructed, and all of us have begun that on this retreat. Every time you come back to the breath, in a sense it's like another brick. We're constructing a, a way of positioning our, ourselves in the midst of what's happening, creating a place of stability. <clears throat> and it's from and with that stability that everything else is investigated. It's not only the kalesas, it's whatever's there. It's the way things are for us from moment to moment. And what is investigated then? What do we take this uh, stability that we've developed, in this case mainly using the breathing, uh, what do we use it for? And in this particular teaching, uh, our investigation is guided by the light of Dharma. It's carried out in the light of Dharma. That is, there's some guidelines to what to investigate And to begin with, most of us need teaching, verbal, which give us a direction, something, an angle, a way of contemplating what's happening to us. Now, it is said that these guidelines are characteristics of reality. They're not arbitrary. They're not uh, fashion. They're not part of a passing fad. 
so that eventually, even though these ideas were put to us and given to us and then we investigate to see if they're really true, like impermanence, like the existence of unsatisfactoriness or a kind of psychophysical stress that runs through everything, and like the notion of not-self that was talked about last night. The ideas are to be understood on the level of ideas at first. Typically, learning goes on this way, and then perhaps we chew on the ideas, we reflect on them. It's still using thinking, but in a skillful way, a way which goes in the direction of Dharma rather than any other direction that it could go in, many. And then finally, we come to move from intellectual understanding, being introduced to ideas and grasping what these ideas mean, to reflecting on them, perhaps comparing them with what we know of life already, our own life already, And finally, the third and the deepest is meditation. And that's where the deepest learning comes from because it's direct. It's not mediated by ideas. It's seeing the way things are. So that first we may hear about impermanence and then we may start reflecting on it. And some of you have already. Some of you have gotten depressed reflecting on it. Well, this is a good time to bring meditation in because examine the depression and you'll see that it too is impermanent. The law is just totally impartial. It keeps operating. And so the practice as we move into this aspect of it, the, the insight practice, is using mindfulness. If you remember, we left off some of the qualities of mindfulness have to do with the fact that it's unbiased that it doesn't have any goal other than the seeing itself, that it has a mirror-like function, that it only happens right now, in this moment, that it has nothing to do, its frame of reference has nothing to do with self, And that it's something we participate in. The kind of observation that is carried out is something that we are... It's our life that we're observing, so we're in it. So in the midst of living out our life, we are developing this objectivity, this ability to see the way things are for us now. And that this mindfulness is accompanied by discernment. Sati Panya is where we left off. Sati being mindfulness and panya being discernment. Both together can mean truth-discerning awareness. So that mindfulness covers an object and then discernment, working very, very closely with it, extracts the significance of the object. It sees its features, its characteristics. It's a kind of intelligence. What is this, if you had to put it into words? But it's not the words. It's looking carefully at that which we are mindful of. And when they're working well, you don't really separate them. And the samadhi is holding it there. If there's strong samadhi, you're stable. It's like having a camera with a tripod rather than all over the place. 
And so we then begin investigating and impermanences or Nietzsche change is one of the most important of the things that we look at carefully. We begin to see that everything that arises passes away. And we already know that. Is there anyone in this room who doubts that? I mean, that is, that things are constantly changing. There's so much evidence for that. It, this is not something that's been, that is, belongs to the Buddhists. Every culture recognizes that and has developed philosophies and art around this. Perhaps what the Buddha did that is somewhat original and profound is that he took this idea that everyone knows about and applied it to us in terms of first-hand investigation of that principle. It's not reflecting on the Sphinx or the end of Greek civilization. It's looking at ourselves right now with tools that are also provided for us, all these meditative tools, so that we're, the mind is fit to do this work. And then it's testing this notion. Is it really true that everything is impermanent? Everything is changing? And so it's bringing awareness to whatever, whatever you want to. But let's say here it's mind and body. And seeing the operation of that law time and time again. It can be seen in any number of ways. You can look at the breath itself. If you're just sticking with the breath, and not being overly concerned with any of the detailed features of the breathing. That's what we've been doing mainly with samadhi. But the very same breath, if looked at from the point of view of wisdom, is something rather different. You begin to see that every in-breath begins and ends. You can start to get a sense of the appearing and disappearing of things. Every out-breath begins and ends. You can trace it. You can be with the breath as it begins, move with it, and then feel it either drop off sharply sometimes or fade away by degrees. And then there's a pause perhaps, and then the pause ends and the next breath and so forth. Or you can get a feeling for this principle simply by feeling the air come in and the air goes out. The lungs fill up and the lungs empty. The lungs fill up and the lungs empty keeps happening. You can get a feeling for that. Oh. Tide coming and going. Sun rising and setting. Wherever you look. Or you can start examining, this is still the breathing, any of the qualities of the breath that perhaps by now are a little bit more familiar, like that the breath is at times fine, at times coarse, at times quite enjoyable, that is the breathing is not blocked, it flows freely and we really enjoy the breathing. And other times it's blocked, choked off. It might be smooth, it might be even or uneven. Very, very deep and full. Or it could be short and choppy. And if you watch the breath, that's another way to study impermanence, to study, to investigate. Now the breath has become a vipassana object. It's not the breath. It's how we're relating to the breath. If we're just sticking to the breath, learning how to do that, that's the essence of samadhi. If we're taking that sticking quality, that ability to be with something that has improved at least a bit with practice, but now 
we're not as interested in the content as what underlies the content, the process. And we see that long breaths don't stay long forever. They either become longer or deeper, or they become more shallow. And that when breath is fine, that doesn't last forever. It may become coarse. All it takes is one thought. Have any of you seen that? The things are smooth, and suddenly you have one idea, a worry, and suddenly the breath changes, and it tightens up. It starts going rapidly. And so you see that this word breath covers a field that's alive, that's constantly changing. Now you can take that same mode of attention, that is that mindfulness and the discernment is interested. So let's say in in this instance, the mindfulness touches the breathing and then discernment starts looking, oh, look at that. It just came and it went. We begin to see subtle ways in which the quality of the breathing is changing. And so from that, you're learning about the law of change. Because you could, wherever you look, it's there. That's what's, that's what's being said. Just as the taste of the ocean is salt, is salty. Wherever you, you could blindfold yourself and just do anything, either internally or externally. If what is being said by the Buddha is true, then it's all subject to that law of arising and passing away. And this law keeps going. And it's independent of content. You could see it that way. You could also see it in the body. Perhaps you're more drawn to investigating certain parts of the body. And I'd like to tonight uh, go into a little bit more detail of one way to investigate pain in a little while. And you could begin to see the energy in the body changing. You could begin to see uh, if there's pain in a certain part of the body and it may feel like a solid sheet of something. As you stay with it, you see it's moving or it changes in intensity. It becomes more painful, less painful. You may notice that there's a second or two when there's no pain. And then it begins again. And then it moves from, from one part of the knee to another part of the knee. And you can see that you're alive. It's another way, another way of saying that everything is impermanent is to say that, every, that we're alive. If it were permanent, what would we be like? The statue in downtown Barry? You know, the guy with the gun? Even he's not permanent. He may think he is. He sure looks like it, you know, with that. But he's not. But, you know, just as a suggest something. We could look at the mind itself. And often that's uh, more delicate because when we look at the mind itself, it's, more, it's easier to get taken up by the mind, caught in it. But when we look at the mind itself, what do you see? You see thoughts coming from nowhere and going again, back into nowhere. Kind of homeless. These thoughts think themselves through the mind. And another one perhaps runs right after that thought, scooting after it, to be followed by another one. We don't know where they go, where do they come from. We don't ask for them, but there they are, chattering about this, chattering about that, images coming through the mind, images falling apart and leaving, moods changing. Now we're happy, now we're sad, now we love IMS, now we hate IMS. (laughs) 
we love it so much, we're going to get a plane to Thailand, <laughs> really practice in one of these forest monasteries until the first sitting when our knee hurts. <laughs> then we'll be happy to get back to Cambridge or wherever. And you look at the mind and you see that also. It's the same law. The mood seems so solid. Oh, I'm really, I'm down. But if if you can just contemplate this down quality, much the way a naturalist contemplates birds or uh, animals in nature, that is, there's an openness and all of the other qualities that were mentioned about mindfulness. It's just... Well, the way, let's say, a good photographer is looking, just looking, looking very, very carefully. Only now, instead of watching cloud formations or watching birds, we're watching, let's say, sadness. Or, if impermanence has really affected us, one way in which it affects us is we get frightened. And we watch fear. We watch fear, but not as a problem. We watch it as a natural phenomenon. See, in this perspective, human beings are part of nature. It's not that nature is out there and then there's us here. In a sense, it's already very suitable for an ecological approach because it's undivided. And so the same laws that are governing the coming together and the falling apart of cloud formations are governing the coming together of sadness and the falling away of it. And so we begin to see what's in the mind, the mood that's coloring the mind, as something that arises and passes away. It's there because of certain causes and conditions. And when those conditions change, it too falls away, and it's followed by something else. And something else, and so forth. And we begin to see, oh, anything that arises seems to pass away. Whatever appears seems to disappear. We've been chanting that every night. And sometimes when we investigate impermanence, it has a powerful effect on us. We become very frightened, perhaps because what we're seeing is death. That is, if you start to see the arising and passing away of everything, clearly that at some point we get it, that it includes us, that we also arise and pass away. (laughs) And that's one side of seeing impermanence, so that the mind, depending on its conditioning, and conditioning could mean anything, a recent death in the family, or not having looked at death very much in life, and then suddenly coming to a retreat like this and hearing so much about impermanence, and it's it's a shock that we're reminded of the fact that we're not permanent. But impermanence itself is not just bad news. There are other things that people take away from it. For example, if things are changing, that is, things, nothing lasts. Things appear and disappear. It also can have the effect, and I don't know if any of you have had this happen to you, where everything's become, everything becomes rather poignant and takes on great value. Just being here, the moments of being at a retreat like this, the retreat won't last, of course not. And sometimes really seeing that, 
uh, people coming in and talking about ride coordination. You know, the handwriting's on the wall, right? <coughs> or understanding that our parents won't be here forever. In fact, none of us are going to get out of this alive at all. <laughs> there isn't one person in this room who's going to make it out alive. Once uh, Ajahn Chah was asked a, a Thai forest teacher to, in br- very briefly, to convey the essence of right understanding. And part of that has to do with understanding that everything that arises passes away. And he pointed to a cup and said, this cup is already broken. So there's just a bunch of skeletons sitting here meditating right now. Not too funny, right? <laughs> I was trying to be funny. <laughs> You don't think we're already dead? <laughs> Only the cup is, gonna, is, is already broken. So one side of that is to value what we have right now, what our life is like right now. The value of each living being. All of us are companions. Companions in being born, in, in aging, and getting sick and dying. We all share that with each other. If we only really, at least some of the time, kept that in mind, it would be very difficult to do some of the things that we do to each other. (coughs) Also, impermanence is good news because if things weren't impermanent, how could children grow up? How could we change? How could we have a meditation retreat? We'd all be fixed in our particular constellation of kilesas. We'd all be just stuck there. But no, there's, it's, there's fluidity. There's the possibility of this energy becoming transformed. And so part of what comes out of wisdom is beginning to see how alive everything is. How everything is dependent on everything else. Getting comfortable with that law. Now, it doesn't come just from thinking. You have to really absorb it. You have to chew on it and chew on it and assimilate it time and time again so that the heart gets it. The heart really doesn't, by and large, doesn't get it. Every now and then it gets a glimpse. And the job of wisdom is, in a sense, to shine light on the truth and to show the heart do you see that everything that arises passes away and, and demonstrate it, proclaim it in as many ways as it can so that finally this truth becomes viable. It becomes something that's living. And so that the, we begin to live in accordance with the way things are. Because until that time, we're agents of the Kalesas. We're living as if we are permanent, as if we have forever. And so it's in that sense that wisdom is in a struggle. That's why the, the warlike images are used. Wisdom is in a struggle with forces that go in the opposite direction. But the struggle is one that's carried out with gentleness and persistence, with sincerity and honesty. It's not clubbing anything or shooting anything. 
Now, if it's true that everything that arises passes away, everything is in movement, everything is uncertain, that is, it's changing and we're not in charge of how it's going to change, that is, the universe is ungovernable in that sense, this law is unfolding the way it wants to unfold, we don't own it, If things are so uncertain, they're also they're not so dependable because they keep changing and often, very often, in ways in which we hadn't anticipated. Now, if this is so, if this is really true, then it's an act of intelligence not to get attached because it makes no sense to grasp onto things tightly in a world that's constantly changing. It's a setup to get hurt even more than we already get hurt. And so the lawfulness is, is helping us to live with more intelligence, more gracefully. It's as if we're dancing with, to one kind of music and perhaps we're doing a good job of it and we're very into it. You know how it feels when you're completely at one with the dancing, perhaps with your partner or with the music. But if the music changes and you keep dancing the same way, it's off, isn't it? You feel silly or stupid. It doesn't work. The, the, the legs just, they don't know what they're doing. People start looking at us. <laughs> so that if the music changes and if we don't change, it's a problem. And what if the music keeps changing? So in order to dance, you have to know that. You have to be in touch with the way things are right now. And so part of the job of wisdom is to keep showing us that over and over and over and over again. Now, I think that Okay, tonight I think we have more time. <laughs> I'm always looking for you for you to kind of say, yeah, we have more time. <laughs> because Corrado and I are very democratic. <laughs> we don't boss each other around. We completely agree on everything. <laughs> it's a true team operation here. Okay. Things are so impermanent that I've forgotten what I said. Right? <laughs> Can anyone help me out? I wasn't... Okay. Um, let me give you an example of uh, wisdom applied to in a very serious area. Now, whether you believe this or whether you have some kind of psychological doubt about it or not, that's okay. But at least give it a chance. Reflect on it. Consider it. Let's talk about death and the way we respond to, to dying because that's impermanence. And uh, there was a Thai teacher named Ajahn Suwat who visited, uh, visited Cambridge and actually some of you met him. He came up with us here last year and hung out with us. And one time in Cambridge, uh, we were talking about death and I asked him about his relationship to his own teacher because I knew he had a very long-term close relationship uh, with his teacher, Ajahn Fun, 
and I asked him, and Ajahn Fun had died fairly recently, and Ajahn Suwat was in charge of, it was a huge gathering of people from all over Thailand, and he put together a book in his memory and so forth. And I asked him about what uh, that was for him, about mourning and grief. And what he said was that when he was a, a young monk, there were times he would think about what will happen when Ajahn Fun dies because he had, he had such a close working relationship with him and loved him very much. And he would get very sad and depressed. He said, but as the years went on, he said his wisdom grew and developed. And when the time came and Ajahn Fun died, he said he had none of those feelings. He had totally accepted Ajahn Fun's death. He was with him prior to, during, and saw the the passage away. And so then a few of us were, I particularly, but others, we were questioning, well, but were you, did you love him? And he said, oh, of course. There was just tremendous love and respect. Uh, but it wasn't a problem. So I asked him, well, can you help us understand that? And he said, well, when the wisdom gets deep enough, he said, there's a, such a total acceptance and understanding that, of course, He's going to die, and it's all right. It's not really good. It's not really bad. It's the way things are. Now, this may sound cold, but try to understand that it could only make sense if the truth of impermanence is so deeply grasped that it is us. So then I asked him another story. I told him another story to complicate things a little bit. When I was in Korea uh, at a monastery, a nun died. And while uh, uh, we were watching the cremation, a famous Korean Zen master who was sitting next to me started crying very much. And I got a little embarrassed, felt a little awkward. And as I've told some of you, I think that's because all I had known of Zen mostly up until that point was Alan Watts. And somehow Zen masters don't cry. They're always just cheerful and, you know, perky and... So the next day I uh, arranged an interview to ask him about it and he just laughed when I questioned him. (laughs) So he said, well, I've known this nun a long time and we're good friends and I'm really sorry that she's gone. I'll miss her. Uh, I said, so I fully cried and now it's over and I can just get on with my life. So I told this to Ajahn Swat and I said, what do you think of that story? So he looked and he said, he didn't want to say anything negative. I said, you know, just for us for learning, you know. (laughs) So then he said, well, um, this monk sounded like a very good monk and that he had lots of wisdom, but maybe a little bit not enough wisdom. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, that was his nun that died. In other words, there was still some possessiveness. Now, I'm not saying that the first response is the correct one, that we should all set that up as an ideal, and that the second one was on the way. Because for all I know, the second one is superior. But I don't think that's the issue. Because it's not to try to be a certain way, but rather when the time comes to be the way we are and to be fully with that. However, to me, it certainly makes sense even if only a few people on this planet ever attain it, that for the wisdom to be so deep and thorough 
that we're not atta- attached to death or life. And that, that because of that, we can live completely fully. When we move on to other things to investigate, we get to dukkha itself, any kind of unsatisfactoriness. And I won't say too much about this because it's quite obvious, but it ranges from extremely obvious physical pain and emotional pain that all of us know about from our own lives and from uh, hearing about other people's lives, serious diseases, things that happen in in wartime, etc., to the most subtle kinds of existential suffering, suffering of meaning, suffering that comes from knowing that we're going to die but not knowing when, like a bad joke. The uncertainty of it all, not being able to count on things. And I'll get back to investigation of this for physical pain in a moment, because now I'd like to move on to uh, the self, anatta, not-self. And as one person put it, that I shouldn't get upset if everyone starts moving to one side of the room. First of all, let me uh, uh, attempt to clarify. When we hear the doctrine or the teaching of anatta, not-self, sometimes some of us hear it as no-self or think that means there's no self. And that can be very, very confusing and frightening and perplexing. Actually, also anatta has, as one side of it, good news. It means there's no... this huge burden that we're carrying around of trying to protect, maintain this self. That's the burden of life. And to just lay that down, or is to truly understand that there's nothing to protect. Not really. That's good news. Okay. There's a subtlety to it. Anatta doesn't mean really not that there's no self. It doesn't mean that the self doesn't exist at all. And some of you, this may be good news. <laughs> I was getting a little worried. What it means is that the self doesn't exist. It exists, but not in quite the way in which we think it does. It has some existence. But it doesn't exist in quite the way in which we, we think it does. Uh, all of us are so different from one another. I spent... Uh, about a week as a, an attendant to a, a, a Zen master in Korea and there was a meeting of many of the te- Zen, Zen masters of Korea to talk about the situation in Korea. And so I, I watched. There were about 15 or 20 of, 20 of these people and many of them seemed extraordinary in terms of their energy, in terms of all kinds of things. But they were so different from each other. One person would seem very introverted and even shy. Another person was joking all the time. One person seemed very intellectual. Another person not at all. Some were very dignified and formal. Others were raucous. So that there is, there's still color in life. There's still individual differences. So that the kind of 
tendencies that we have are not random. There's still some patterning to the way in which we manifest, each one of us, that's so different so that we can recognize each other, so that I know that you're you and I'm me. We see each other. We're different. And so there is something going on. It's patterned. It's not random. But it doesn't exist in quite the way in which we think it exists. We impute to it a kind of solidity, what Corrado was getting into last night. We impute a core. We give it a kind of inherent nature, which it doesn't have. It lacks that. Now, that completely comes out of, if you've been following this uh, thinking about impermanence, you can see that if everything's arising and passing away, just watch that in your mind. Well, all these different versions of who it is we think we are keep coming through the mind. Well, which one is you? Can you find one that's really the one? Maybe, and then it's gone. And there are just all these different... There's the mind that decided to practice. And then there are all these other minds that don't want to practice at all. And so there's nothing that we can point to and say, there I am. You can try it, but if you really are careful and pay attention, you'll see that the law of impermanence is at work all the time. And so different facets and versions of what it is that's going on keep moving through the mind over and over and over again. The mind is endlessly describing itself to itself as being this, that, and the other. I used to be a certain way. Now that I'm a meditator, I'm going to be a different way. In the future, I'll be this way. And we have thoughts and verbal conclusions and pictures and seeing ourselves a certain way, driving a car, a certain kind of car, whatever it is that the mind conjures up. And all these images and thoughts keep coming and going and they're inconsistent and contradictory and unreliable. And it's in that realm that we're trying to find stability. How can we? It's a losing battle. It's like quicksand. Now, it's true that there are some people who have a bit more, even a lot more stability on that level. Which, let's say, they've developed more, let's say, self-esteem, what is called self-esteem, positive images about themselves. And others, uh, much worse. There's no stability, or the imagery that comes up is negative a good deal of the time. But if you're looking to land there, to sit down there, I think you'll be disappointed. And that's why typically, very often, you may come from psychological work that may have given you some benefit and then realize that that's the jumping off point for something else. So that if you arrive at some reasonable sense of personal identity, whether you view it through Jung's or Erickson's or whoever's eyes, in a sense that's a good place to begin spiritual work. It's not the end, it's the beginning. Because then we have to examine that and from the point of view of, a, of Dhamma, what you find is the existence of personal identitylessness. Now, to begin with, for a lot of us, probably for all of us, when we talk about self-knowledge, let's say you on a retreat like this, perhaps you've glimpsed some insights into yourself. Personal understandings, let's say, something you knew about yourself already, but now it's deepened. Or little aspects of your behavior, things you like or dislike. Oh, I didn't know that about myself. I didn't realize I was so impatient or so harsh. Well, I didn't realize I was so loving. And so, 
we find out what we are. We keep seeing little uh, more clearly and we talk about it as finding out who we are. And at first, that's what self-knowledge reveals. But more and more, as the practice rolls on, what we find out is not, and what gets really interesting, is not what we are, but what we aren't, which is namely all of it. So at the beginning, there's interest. It's mainly on the psychological level. And one of the reasons that it's very hard to study impermanence, people have, are not so interested in studying impermanence, because we're much more interested in our story. I used to be, I am, I will be. That seems to be endlessly fascinating to us. More discoveries about our personality. Now, the time can come when you've seen your story so many times and seen it from so many different angles that you begin to get a little bit bored. (laughs) I see Gone with the Wind in Cambridge is coming around again. New kind of color, something they're doing to it. I'm not going to go see it. I've already seen it five times. It's enough. I know about the fire and the railroad station. I want to see it. And I know she decides to love him when it's too late. So I've had enough of Gone with the Wind. Or Lawrence of Arabia, four times. But what about Lawrence of Brooklyn? And for you, (laughs) but don't don't just laugh at me. And so we, the, the process of investigation is, becomes more and more seeing how all of these images, all of these verbal conclusions are insubstantial. They arise and pass away. And the more we see that, the more it's easy to let go of them. We see them, they come, they go. And it's that letting go that is the process of our practice that's taking us to freedom. And we know when we're not doing that. We get caught on one of them really stuck on one of them and we can get really hurt, badly hurt, with some verbal conclusion or something that the mind makes up about itself and that we grasp onto it, identify with it, and then we're harmed by it, burned. The Buddha said, everything's on fire. We're on fire. And it's the Dharma that puts out the fire because it's wisdom that sees through uh, the false way in which we put reality together. Now, let me give you another example of what I mean by that the self exists, but not in quite the way in which we think it exists. It doesn't have inherent reality, inherent existence. It has relative existence. Let's say you're watching a horror movie late at night on TV. And there's nobody home. It's a big house, a big old house. Creaks. The wind is blowing outside. And whatever else has happened to add to the plot. 
And there's this incredible horror movie on TV. It's lit and it's two in the morning. And maybe there's some, you know, some of these monsters that they cook up that are incredible now when you look at them. And let's say you're watching it and you undergo a fear, an experience of terror. You know, it ha- that's why we like the, the people pay a lot of money to get them to get frightened. Here's five dollars. Really scare me to death. <laughs> I don't know why. I've never done this, but we do that. Okay, now supposing you, you do that, the image comes up and you totally get identified with it and break out into sweat and you're so frightened, maybe you even have to turn the set off. Okay, now the monster on that set doesn't have inherent reality. It doesn't. It has some reality, but let's say if you take an axe and start break open the TV set trying to find that monster, I don't think you'll have much luck. It's, there's nothing there, just you know, wires and all this kind of stuff, and all it is is an illusion. But it's not nothing. It's something. In other words, what happened was the combination of these pictures with the dark and that particular house and the wind blowing outside and the mood that you were in was a a, a, a combination. We call it dependent arising that it all came together and those conditions and working together produced this sense of a monster, a frightening monster. But the truth is, it's, it's just some image on celluloid or whatever. It's just on film. It's nothing. can't do anything to anyone. So we're not saying that it doesn't exist. It exists, but it doesn't have inherent reality. To bring, come a little bit closer to home, when you have a nightmare, let's say there's a tiger about to eat you, you know how convincing that can be. Right? And we have all the physiological signs of fear. We can heart palpitations and sweat. And there's a tiger there. But it's a dream tiger. And it's a dream body that's being eaten up or being chased. And when we wake up, that whole reality falls away. And then we're usually kind of condescending and very happy. Oh, it was just a dream. We're incredibly relieved. It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? When you find out it was just... Right? Great. (laughs) I'm okay. I don't have to go back to school and get another degree. I I already passed that. I finished my degree. That's right. But in the dream, you didn't. I've had that dream now and then. (laughs) But the tiger had some reality. It didn't exist in, in, it didn't have inherent reality. It didn't really have a core. It wasn't independent. But it's not, it's not like nothing happened. Something happened. The combination of that, uh, the mind identifying with those images produced real effects. And you might be exhausted from something that never happened in a certain way. And so the self is a bit like that. And as you begin to investigate, you can really see what some of the philosophers mean, not only in Asia, but all over, that life is a dream. There's a huge component of dream-like, fugue-like aspect to living as the mind continues to concoct realities, like we're all dreaming that we have a retreat here right now, and that Corrado and I are teaching it, and that you're studying it and putting it into practice. It's just a, it's a dream. Then again, it isn't. So does that give you somewhat of a feeling for it that is... Um, anatta means uh, that whatever it is you look at, it's not self. 
It lacks this inherentness. Now, now let's go back to some of the ways in which we build up the self. We're going a little long now because uh, I hope this at least leaves you with a, a somewhat more of a sense of wisdom and then a few more practical hints. Just as the monster is built up out of the combination of the TV and dark and your mood and in the nightmare that's built up by whatever it is that goes into making a dream happen, the sense of self is also built up out of our relationship to the world, particularly our own mind and body. So that, for example, we identify with the body as being self. This body has a particular shape, a particular age, a particular color, etc. All the different qualities of bodies. And there's an identification with it. And out of that, we build up a very convincing self, sense of self. And that it's either I am this body, this body is me, or else this body belongs to me, which is a little bit more distant, but it's quite related to it. Some years ago, I learned something about the body and wisdom. Uh, it came to me inadvertently, more out of, uh, not out of wisdom really, it came out of desperation. Uh, I was working with a meditator who had one arm, a woman who had one arm, um, and she was very depressed attractive, intelligent, very depressed, and had one arm since she was a young girl, very young. And we tried everything, this whole practice, any, so many different directions, so many different practices, and nothing could kind of get through. And this went on for quite a while. We would meet, I think, once a week, sometimes on retreats almost every day, and so forth. And there was trust there, but one time, out of just complete exasperation, it occurred to me in working with this person who had such a stubborn attachment to, de- to depression. I just, just, it blurted out of me. You don't usually say things like this to a person who has one arm. We're very, very careful about how we speak, usually. And I just said, Jesus, you're just the biggest egomaniac I've ever met. And the person was just shocked, and I was shocked by what came out of my mouth. What I was trying to say was that, you know, we tend to think of egomaniac as somebody who's flaunting their, their body and uh, the body beautiful or the body strong or the body youthful. But it doesn't really matter. The flip side of this person really, because she had one arm, was convinced that she was worthless. And the, the, the conviction was so deep. So essentially she was her body, and her body was defective. It only had one arm. And because of that equation, her whole life was changed. Totally. Because the ego landed on that particular feature of the body. Became so fastened to it that it colored absolutely everything else that went on. Now, we can do this with any part of the body. We can do it about how much we weigh, about how our shape, about how old the body is. You know what I'm talking about. 
Most of the world's businesses are oriented towards taking care of this body. All these salves and ointments and lotions and you know clothing and there's just endless numbers of things designed to do something to enhance this body so we can identify with it and think we're okay. And I'm not saying don't buy nice clothes or don't you know rub creams and oils into your body. I'm not saying don't do that. But rub a little wisdom in too. For example, if we could only see through that, just to see how the mind creates this, and you know, we all have two arms, but you know, look to yourself if there's some other counterpart. And wisdom helps liberate us to understand that we have a body, there is a body. That's actually a more accurate way to put it. Care for it in terms of health, even in terms of its attractiveness. But don't be taken into thinking that you are the body and that whatever the fate of the body is, that's what you are or that it's a possession of yours. That's another illusion. How in the world could it belong to us when nature just does whatever it wants to, to it? Can we tell the body what to do? You know, can we tell it to live a certain length of time or to not get sick? Actually, the body orders us around as much as we order it around. Go to the bathroom. Okay, eat. Wake up from your sleep and go to the bathroom. Get some rest. Okay. And it's the same with the mind. Any of the notions that come through the mind, ideas about ourselves. If you're an intellectual, then to disagree with someone who's really an intellectual, and you all, many of you know what I mean, someone who, let's say, who earns their living, there is their thoughts are turned into dollars and cents all the time. Every idea is, has cash value, potentially. You disagree with an idea of a person like that, it's World War III because the person may have identified with their, the, the, the notions in their mind and think that that's who they are. Or it could be your emotions. Anything, really. In other words, the, your car. The identification with cars is so thorough that people even talk that way. You know, my transmission went out. <laughs> you know, my, my brakes are shot. I ran out of gas. <laughs> you know, I understand polishing the car on Sunday and all that, but let's not go so far as to think we are the car. And then I've seen, there are people who get in fights over little scratches. Perhaps you've seen it. I've seen it. If you think or do something to someone's car, it's, it's an extension of their body. I mean, it can be even more important to some people. Okay, now the job of wisdom of Satipanya is seeing through all of this. It's being able to, and there, so you can see there are any number of doors for wisdom to come through. And different people at different times will be investigating in different ways. So there isn't any one, it's not cookbook or recipe. So some of you will be working on the body a lot more. Some of you may be examining feelings, seeing the arising and passing away of feelings. You can use the breath not only for calming, but also for the development of insight, of vipassana, as was mentioned earlier. 
At some point, you may want to examine selfing itself, just beginning to see how the mind appropriates things, claims them, how the mind appropriates something about the body and makes it, this is me. It makes a self out of it. And the teaching is saying that everything that arises and passes away is there because of causes and conditions. It's not self. And we don't own it. It belongs to nature. And finally, we must give it back to nature. Okay, let me um, finish up with one example of a, a way to investigate physical pain. I know it's, you've been paying attention for a while. If you're feeling a little scattered or tired, come to the breath for a moment. Some of you know about the five khandhas or the five aggregates. So if you don't, it might be helpful when you go home to read up on it a bit. It's, it can be helpful. It's very basic to Buddhist psychology. And it's very, uh, if you understand the terminology just a little bit, some of the teachings will be more clear to you. But roughly, put simply, there's, we have this body, this bodily form. <clears throat> Let's, let's work with physical pain. All of us, I'm assuming, have had physical pain at one point or another during this retreat. Let's say the pain is... I don't know, someone volunteer. Where do you want the pain to be? The back. Upper back, not just back. Okay. Pain is in the upper back. Now, there's a back. There's a part of the body, we call it back, and maybe it has muscles and tendons and so forth. And it's not always in pain, is it? No. Right. So then at a certain point, it gets certain feelings. So first there's this back, and then uh, we call that rupa. I forget about the words for tonight. The, the feelings come in, and the feelings are either pleasant or neutral or unpleasant. So that when there's unpleasant feelings, we call it dukkha. There's a sharp pain or a dull ache. And who hasn't known that during the retreat? So there's the body and the body is visited by different feelings. And these feelings come and go. The body uh, at times feels painful, at times feels comfortable, and at times it's neither. It's just there. And the mind starts to make up labels about what's happening. It, for example, will make up a label that that's back, that's upper back. And then should this ache achy feeling start or a sharp pain start, then it might label it as pain. Now, just putting that name on it is a significant event. Once you call that P-A-I-N, the mind is off and running. Then there's another part of the mind that interprets that. It makes up a whole story about it. And it can go on and on and on about, once you say pain, is like a computer printout, and then all the different things that the mind can imagine about pain, including gangrene or being carted away from the retreat or whatever it is. 
And as you probably know by now, the mind has, is shameless. It has unlimited ability to make up whatever it wants to about anything. Complete freedom. Okay, so just with... And then there's something that knows all this. Now, let's take the example of the upper back. You're sitting in meditation and dukkha strikes there. You feel in that back uh, some very, very painful sensations. Now, one way to investigate, this is not the only way, but it's certainly a, a good way, is that you then focus right on into the, those painful sensations. Whether you've been working with the breath or not, especially if it becomes very strong, you focus in on those sensations and you try to stay there with as unwavering a degree of attention as you can. Now, the investigation can go in the following way. It's one way to do it. Eventually, as you get comfortable with this, you'll work intuitively. But I'll just give you a kind of a model just to get you started. So you're focused in on the physical pain and without losing it, it's as if you keep your hold there. You then move and you, to the mind and you, and you hear, let's say, the mind making up, uh, creating words about what's happening to the upper back. Oh, this is agonizing. This is awful. I hate being here. I hate meditation. Lots of words. Now, the investigation would be, can you sort out? Can you tell the difference? Like, this is the back. The back was okay for a while and now there's pain that's visited. The pain at some point leaves. So there's pain and back, they're different. Then you start to go to these mental functions. And while you're still focused in on the physical pain, you can hear the mind making up stuff about what's happening. Stories and interpretations and courses of action and giving you what, telling you what to do to leave the hall. These are feelings. Feelings are feelings. They're not thinking. Thinking is thinking. They're not feelings. Thinking is not the body either. The body is not thinking. Different kinds of thinking. Well, I get it. These things are all different. Not only that, there's something that knows. There's something that's aware, that sees, it can experience that that knowing quality is not the pain. It's just knowing. The pain is not the knowing. It's just pain. Now, let's say the pain in your back, it doesn't have your name on it. It really doesn't. It's just throb, throb, throb. However, if there's no investigation, it's very likely that selfing happens, that is, the mind appropriates that and makes it into self. It grasps hold of it, and then it becomes my upper back, my, my pain, poor me, and then may link into all the other times you've had pain and the fear of what this is going to lead to. And before you know it, you have an incredible melodrama. And it's actually fact you move from just physical pain, you move to sorrow and despair. That is, what started out as physical pain, I'm not saying it's imaginary. The pain is real. It's in the back. But then if there's no investigation, the mind blends in with it, claims it, grasps hold of it, and makes it into self. And then once that happens, we suffer. We might as well be a self because we suffer as if that pain has as if, as if it has inherent existence. It doesn't. It has, just as all the other examples that were mentioned, it has relative existence. It has come together because of certain conditions. 
Now, investigation begins to see through those conditions. And in sorting them out, what happens is you dissolve the bridge between the mind and the body. And so you short-circuit this tendency to build a self of it. The investigation itself does that. Because you see that everything is just what it is. Thoughts are thoughts. For example, the thought might be, this is my back. But now you're not caught in that. You just know that this is a thought, this is my back. And the pain is just the pain. And if any of you have done this, just be, been able to, just be able to tell the difference between mind and body, to make it simple. Uh, perhaps you've discovered that you're much more able to work with pain. Sometimes the pain just leaves altogether. Or it certainly, at times, diminishes. Now, in line with what has been said about the nature of mindfulness, we're not in, we're not, don't try to make the pain go away. Because that's a typical question in interviews. Well, I watched it and it didn't go away. You know, we went into that a little bit the other evening. That's not true watching. The real mindfulness is just mindfulness and the investigation is just investigation. It's seeing the way things are. That bodies are bodies, feelings are feelings, thoughts are thoughts. We see, for example, that the mind is fine, it's nice and happy. And then suddenly there's pain in the back and then the mind's unhappy. And we start to say, oh, look at that. Here's a nice happy mind and then the back starts hurting and then the mind starts hurting. Now, does it follow that because the body malfunctions that the mind has to malfunction? Without wisdom, very often, if not always, or almost always, yes. When there's investigation, we begin to see that it doesn't follow necessarily that because the body is hurting that the mind has to hurt. Now, to some of you who are relatively new to the path, this may sound a little bit far-fetched or unrealistic or unattainable. All I can say is, give it a try. Poke around sometimes. Do some investigation. But also, the degree to which samadhi is developed will, of course, help you do this investigation. Because then you have a more stable instrument. And the investigation of physical pain is a strong way to develop samadhi. Because when there's physical pain, if you're willing to turn to it at all, there's no question that's the strongest object in town. And it's the only place to be. The Buddha, finally, was asked about this. And he was asked, what's the difference between the way uh, a regular person experiences physical pain and the way in which a wise person does? And he said that when a, a regular person like ourselves exp- experiences physical pain, it's like they've gotten hit by two darts. One dart hits the body and the other dart hits the mind. Whereas the wise person, when they have physical pain, they've only gotten hit with one dart, just the body. But the mind itself doesn't necessarily uh, have to be in pain because the body is. Now, if you hear what this is about, you see that this is a a main thrust throughout the whole practice because this mode of investigation is not limited to the body or to physical pain. What we're attempting to do is to see clearly. And if... If you're interested in personal identity, and I know many of you are, fine. Don't believe anything that was said tonight or last night, but calm the mind, steady it, and then begin to learn and see what you find out. See if this is true.
Let me leave you with a reflection. If you could just meditate for a moment. Relief is in sight. Be able to move in just a few seconds. think that uh, to some degree what I'm, what I'm about to say, which is just uh, repeating what the Buddha said, is what we're chanting at night. The Buddha said that everything that appears disappears. Everything that appears, disappears. When this appearing, and when this appearing and disappearing itself disappears, we're in the land of stillness and bliss. Okay, we have about 10 minutes to move about a little stretch, but please maintain the silence and then we'll have the final sitting of the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.